This podcast provides a platform for our guests to express their own personal views and opinions. Some or all of these views and opinions may not be shared by Ben and or Yoel. Welcome to the Two Dad to Quit podcast. The podcast where we highlight stories of dads on the other side of divorce. To inspire and give strength to dads going through it. I'm Ben. And I'm Yoel. Welcome back to the Two Dad to Quit podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, share, comment, and rate us on Spotify and iTunes and wherever else you are getting the podcast. It's really important to help get our message out and make sure that as many people are able to listen to this podcast as possible. You can find us on twodadtoquit.com, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, Two Dad to Quit. We want to hear from you, share your story, want your comments. Tell us what else you would like to hear. Send us your questions. We are here to help you. We have big plans. And thank you for listening. On our podcast, we have our two dad to quit moments. And this week, I thought I'd share one of mine. So I was with my daughter and her zipper got stuck. And she wanted to take off her jacket so badly and she couldn't do it. And she came over to me and she's like, I can't get this off. And she just was about to cry. And it took me like a minute and a half and I was able to wiggle the zipper open and I opened it up and <laughs> I was not expecting it. She gave me the biggest hug she's given me in a very long time. And so I just wanted to say, you know, those two dad to quit moments, they don't have to be the biggest things. They don't have to be, you know, taking them on a trip to a roller coaster. It could just be the little thing of fixing their zipper and you will be their hero. So <laughs> don't. Don't uh, don't take all those little moments for for granted. They uh, they come out of nowhere. So I just wanted to share that very nice story. This week we have Arnie Goldfein. He is uh, someone I've known for a long time. He's uh, I would say my one of my fake uncles as uh, my my life traveled many places and I've adopted many families. Um, so his sister basically I call her mommy and uh, is very dear to me. And uh, he has a very interesting story uh, of addiction, which uh, alcohol, which apparently started uh, very, very young. Um, and he had six kids. Uh, and that was the time when he you know, decided to, to go and, and figure this out and, and go into recovery. And he's been sober for 37 years. And this is, you know, this is his story. And I, I'm had, glad to have him on here because I know his story is not unique. And uh, it's it's just incredible to see the relationship he has with his kids and uh, continues to have. And he's got 25 grandchildren. And, I, I, you know, I just want to give hope to people out there that are, that are suffering through kind of the same experience as him. Yeah, he look. By the way, I, I didn't mention this to Arnie. I should have. He looks great. I mean, I I couldn't believe he's how many grandkids he has. He really looks amazing, and more importantly uh, than looks is his uh, self awareness and intelligence, and his vulnerability and his willingness to be open and honest. It was uh, extremely refreshing. I related to a lot of the things uh, that he talked about: ideas of ego and humility and caring for oneself and self esteem. Uh, our audience will have a lot of uh, takeaways from this, and I am very, very excited for, for them to listen. Yeah, and let's get into it. Today, we are sitting with Arnie Goldfein. Arnie grew up in Baltimore and moved to New York for most of his adult life 
and recently returned to Baltimore to be closer to his children and grandchildren. Arnie has been married twice. It has been 12 years since his last divorce. Arnie has been blessed with six children and 25 grandchildren. He is also an avid biking enthusiast and recently had to take a break due to an injury, but his life work as helping as many people as possible to grow uh, their spiritual lives. So Arnie, or Uncle Arnie, as I like to call you, it's an honor to have you on here. Thank um, you, thank you. I've only heard, you know, uh, the overview, helicopter view of, I guess, your back, your history. And, and when I got involved with the, with your wonderful family um, from many, many different sides. And it's, you know, it's been an, it's been wonderful to see and hear, you know, before I got there, what was going on and, and how you've made those changes in your life uh, to see where you're at. And also you being so involved in, in the computer guy, you know, my father was also the computer guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had a natural connection to you um, in that respect, that there was a religious guy that kind of did the same thing as my father. Um, so I had, you know, I was naturally drawn to you. Um, and as a person, you know, you've always been in good and supportive uh, for me. And I was pretty much on my own uh, traveling between <laughs> both sides of your family. Um, and so I thank you for that. Um, so where I'd like to start here is kind of, you know, growing up in Baltimore, what that was like, you know, I was very close to your mother. Um, uh, she was a, a very special lady um, and she had a big impact on my life actually. Um, and just what it was like growing up in Baltimore. I know that you've got a very interesting family and, and, and situation there as well. So, um, wow, I'm going to learn stuff about other people and, you know, what other people see of me and what I see of me don't necessarily go inside. Um, Baltimore, Baltimore was very interesting. You know, I'm a kid. uh, I was a kid that probably was broken, um, you know, from day one. And I say that because I get to look back at at my life and and see um, how do I even express it? and see what was wrong then, but that didn't know that something was wrong then. I thought my life was fine. I thought it was, you know, all great and, you know, peaches and cream, as they used to say. Um, And I grew up, I I grew up here. I I went to school here. I always felt different than everybody. I always had this level of anxiety and fear and, and differentness that, that, that I, that just, to just, you know, embraced me. But I didn't think that there was anything wrong, um, even though I felt like something was wrong, but I didn't have the labels for what was wrong. And for years, my sister and I, in, 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 my, in my adult life, my sister and I would sit and compare notes about our families. And she would say to me, Arnie, you know, we grew up in the same house, but we didn't see the same thing that each other saw. Um, the fact that my, yeah. mother was such, yeah, my mother was such an impact on you. You know, you're going to bring me to tears when it comes to that, because every time my mom comes up in a conversation and my sister comes up in a conversation, uh, the tears just flow because there were two individuals in my life that had a huge impact. And I'm not just talking about, well, that's mom or that's my sister. Uh, My sister was my peer until she passed away, which was about 12 years ago. And my mom's been gone already for 20, 23, 24 years, 1999. Um, We grew up in a crazy house. And again, it's something that I can look back and see, but I couldn't tell you at the time. I thought it was normal. I lived in a neighborhood where 
um, I lived in a neighborhood where where people used to throw the <laughs> I saw pots throwing out flying out of people's windows. And when I saw pots flying out of people's windows and parents screaming at kids, I figured that was normal. And that's what the norm was in our house. And um, uh, that's really what it was. I always felt, like I said, I felt like the square peg in a round hole, maybe the round peg in a square hole, whatever didn't fit the way it should have, that was me. And um, I guess the easiest way to express it for me in my world is I was thirsty way before I picked up my first drink. Something was going on inside of me. There was a, there was a, there was a void in my, in my soul that, that I just, I couldn't explain. There's a great movie out there, or there was, I don't know if it's, I don't even know if you can find it. When I was growing up, there was a movie that said something about the fact that everything you wanted to know about sex, but we're afraid to ask. What are you yelling? You, you, oh, you didn't know that? <laughs> Look no, up, I'd I'd say, what, that's, that's, that's Woody Allen's movie. That's a Woody Allen. I think it was a Woody Allen movie. Yeah. In, in, in my recovery uh, uh, as an alcoholic and a drug addict, um, I learned that everything I always wanted to know about life um, was really in, in the 12 step rooms because I had no clue how to live. I, it, my perception, my perception of life was different than others. Now, I don't know if that's because my mother looked at me funny or my grandmother looked at me funny when I was a year and a half old. I have no idea what it is. I don't think it really makes a difference anymore. All I know is that at some point, um, I just felt different. I just felt different. And I went to school here. I was friendly with everybody. So everybody says you were a great guy. I didn't feel like I was a great guy. I just felt that aloof, separate, apart, apart from kind of person that just went along with what everybody because I wasn't I didn't understand my feelings I wasn't allowed to have my feelings I grew up in a house where there was a lot of there was a lot of rage um and I was the um recipient of that rage my brother and I both and my sister was the princess so mm -hmm. <laughs> she was the one you know <laughs> Arnie I'm the princess yeah I know we, we know we're ready everybody knows um and my mom was a very staunch supporter she was you know, it was a different generation where people stayed together because they stayed together. Um, and if I would ever to look back and if I could ever figure it out, the only complaint that I really have um, as far as my childhood goes is that they were my, my father was incapable. And I say this lovingly. I have no I have no anger, residual anger or resentment. He was incapable of knowing that he could do something about his life. Probably. I mean, I saw a great, there's a great book out there. Um, it's it's a novel and it was a story. I think it's The Lost Patient. And it's a story of this woman who was found standing over her husband with a knife in her hand and and they're very well-to-do people. And, and um, they they take her and they put her into, into a, in a psych ward. And the story is related from her side and from the therapist side who take, mm -hmm. takes care of us. Two different Two different, you know, directions. And the therapist goes on to tell my story of how he grew up. And that was my story with a hmm. with a rageful father, with a this and that. And, and he goes into, into really crazy detail, you know, about the whole thing. And um, at the end, he described something that was so profound to me, where he said, if my father were alive today, he probably would have been diagnosed with a mental illness. Wow. Hmm. So you got me, guys, because you got me. In in those days, in the, in the I was born in 1951. In those days, you know, going to therapy, being Jewish, and going to therapy 
was either number one, they couldn't afford it because they couldn't afford anything anyway, right? Mm. Or, it, you know, the stigma, add more stigma on top of, oh, oh my God, they're in, you know, they're in therapy. So that was my childhood. Yeah, I grew up and I learned, I played baseball and I was in the little league and, 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 you know, I, and it was also, we were a Jewish family in a non-Jewish neighborhood and yeah, there was anti-Semitism and then there was all this stuff that goes with it. Um, and I think they tried to protect me to the best that they could, but unfortunately it never, it, it was not enough. Um, because like I said, I was the guy that was thirsty way before I picked up my first drink. Wow. And when did you pick up your first drink? So my first real drink where I, where, when I can look back and I see what's going on actually happened when I was three, four years old. I, wow. I was, I was diagnosed with a stomach ailment and they gave me a prescription of medication called paragoric. And if you look up paragoric, it is 40% alcohol and 5% morphine. And um, something happened that day. And I remember it, guys, I, I, I tell this story all the time where um, I hated the way it smelled. I hated the way it tasted in a millionth of a second. I loved the way it made me feel. And um, I wanted more. And we can get into detail later because I'll talk about some addiction a little bit. Um, and that that's really the underlying basis of what addiction is all about. You know, like what's going on here? You know, why even at that early age, you know, I wanted more of something. It made me feel better. Well, medication aspirin made me feel better too, but I didn't, I, I, I wasn't running after aspirin. And the interesting thing was, is that six months later, when I had the same stomach ailment, I remember saying I wanted this paragoric and the doctor said, well, we don't prescribe that anymore, which I find out, found out a couple of years ago is not true. It's still out there on the market. Um, and I was, and I was angry about it. I was upset about it at the age of four. My real first drink came at services on a Saturday morning. And one of the old men called me over and he said, um, come over here, come over and take a glass of schnapps because that's all that there was in those days. It wasn't any of the fancy stuff like there is today. Like I missed out on the Johnny Blue and the Maker's Mark and all that <laughs> stuff I missed out on. Um, actually, it's funny because for years, my clients used to give me cases of Johnny Walker Blue. And, wow. and, and I'm like, and McAllen, 18 years old, and I'm handing them out like it's, you know, people, oh, Arnie, thank you. And I'm like, <laughs> and, and, they're, and they're sipping it so nicely. And, oh, this is delicious. And I'm like, what's wrong with you people? Um, so I was I was 11 years old and the same kind of thing happened. But a, a, an additional thing happened that day where I picked up my first drink. I picked up that drink. Now, you have to understand that there's now seven years additional into my life and and some of the dysfunction that went on. Um, I picked up the drink. I hated the way it smelled. I hated the way it tasted. In a millionth of a second, I loved the way it made me feel. And then some other magic happened that day where I all of a sudden got bolder and I got taller and I got better looking. I, I don't know how that's possible, guys, but you know, I was better. <laughs> and, um, and I realized that day that the like, like the old men became nice. My father became a nice guy that day. And I made the determination that this is how people get through life. My magic mm. happened through a substance that day. Now, I didn't go out at 11 years old and drink, you know, whatever. Um, and on the way home from school that day, I said to my father, I want more. And he, of course, laughed and said no. But something, some seed was planted in my brain. And uh, to understand that, again, I had to go into recovery to understand what that 
that planting was uh, that I understood what, you know, alcoholism is all about and where that took me to. Was there any, any of this in your family? Not that I, not that I'm aware of. It seems that I have uh, one of my mother's sisters, my aunt, there was, you know, quiet under the table, you know, Aunt is an alcoholic, you know, kind of thing. Mm. Um, and she actually said to me at one point in my life that she was very proud of me that I got into recovery, but we never had discussions. Um, mm. There's a whole, there's a whole litany of, of paperwork and, you know, writings and, and scientific, let me just move my camera a little bit. I don't know if that's any better. Um, you know, discussions and research on, you know, where does alcoholism start? Is it in the genes? Can you drink yourself into alcoholism and so on and so forth? Um, they say that it skips a generation, which, you know, I'm looking at my grandchildren and saying, yeah, it skips a generation. <laughs> 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 All the grandkids that I'm saving seats for in, in AA meetings. So I, I don't know how to answer that. I, I really don't know how to answer it. I can tell you some of the attitudes that are characteristic of um, active alcoholics was very much alive in, in 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 my family on both sides of my family so you got me guys on that one what what are those attitudes well there there's 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 well a survival mentality you know we got to do whatever it takes to make us to, to make us work and that will include being dishonest and and being negative and and being selfish and self-centered and and fearful and 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 I think some of it is healthy, but when it comes to a substance and a, and fears being the propulsion system that we have, um, that kind of manifests differently in someone who has a substance use disorder than somebody who doesn't. It's just the way that it is. I mean, you could we could we can go through that. That'll take us weeks to go through to understand and to deal with that one. Mm. And way, you, so, you mentioned your clients. What what do you just for context for our audience? What is it you do professionally? Okay, so I do I do a bunch of things. Obviously, <laughs> the bottom line is whatever makes money. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, unfortunately, I still got to make a living. I don't understand. You know, the landlord he still wants his rent every month. You know, I don't get that. But I've had a computer hardware business for probably about forty years now, mm. um, and thank God, you know, it's, it's paid the bills. But a bunch of years ago, um, when I first got into recovery, I started being of service and being helpful and mentoring people. And now professionally, I am a, a certified peer advocate and I help people plan their recovery lives. And that's across the board with whatever the addictions are, because um, I pretty much you have one. I'm not saying if you have one, you have them all. But you know, it's like whack-a-mole. I put it down over here and then I got to take care of it over here. And then I got to deal with it over here until it all comes together. And I realize that what I'm really dealing with is me. Hmm. I'm me. Yeah, no, I've, I've heard that, you know, some of the other podcasts I listen to, there's there's a lot of uh, like actors and, and a lot of these people that are now coming and, and becoming dry. And they explain like, you know, First it was alcohol, then it was sex, then it was drugs, then it was, and so you just, you get one under and then another one pops up and, you, and it right. keeps so, going. So, right. And then, you know, and the crazy part about it is, is we put down the alcohol or the, and, or the substances and, and what happens is, is the bad news is, the good news is, is we get our feelings back. And the bad news is, is we get our feelings back. 
<laughs> um, and all the neurotransmitters are gone and you know the body if it's healthy it'll start reacting again and i react i mean you know the first thing that that woke up was below my waist and i'm like now what am i going to do with this you know here and because i was never taught how to deal with it on on a healthy level to begin with my all all my teachings came either from the street or it came from television or it came from based in fear from from, from yeshivas, you know, I'm going to burn in hell forever and uh, I'm going to go blind for those who understand what that is all about. Um, and now I'm clean and sober and wow, now what do I do? You know, and I'm healthy. And so there was a lot of stuff that had to be learned how to deal with and or dealt with and then learning how to deal with the rest of my life because there's other areas of my life. There is my physical being and being able to take care of that, which is connected to my emotional being, which needs to be taken care of and my mental being and my spiritual being and my financial being and my social being and my sexual being. And none of those are separate. And I cannot separate any of those together. So if I'm not feeling well physically, well, on a simple level, I don't want to go to work, right? Or if I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling good physically, I don't want to have sex or, you know, any of the things. And if my thinking is off because I'm overwhelmed with something, um, all those other areas are going to feel are going to be affected also. So learning how to deal with the unmanageability of the life in sobriety has always been and continues to be not because it's the same way as it was when I first got clean and sober, but life changes on a day to day basis and my fears change on a day to day basis. And I have to deal with that on, literally on a day to day basis and not in a negative sense. It's like it's not like, oh, my God. It's like, oh, great. It's, you know, what's new today that we're going to deal with and being able to deal with it in a very, on a very healthy and I'm going to say joyful level. Like, okay, God, <laughs> let's go have a good, what's, what's on the tap for today that we're going to have a good time with. So mm. when, when did you get clean and sober, by the way? 19, January 4th, 1986. I just saw oh, wow. 37 years in recovery. Wow. That's a lot of chips. Yes, it is. <laughs> here, one second. Here, here. You got one sitting right here. Wow. Nice. Um, so I want to jump back a little bit. So you're 11 years old in Baltimore. And then I get some point you left Baltimore and ended up. Yeah. When I was 14, because they didn't know how to deal with Arnie and I uh, was having trouble in school. And, you know, you know how that goes. Um, um, so they sent me, I still say to this day, they sent me away to Yeshiva. <laughs> get rid of them. Get rid of them. Um, I wish I could look at it in a different way. I haven't been able to do that quite yet, but I went away to, to Yeshiva that understands people like me. You know, we've heard that many times over. Um, and when I hear that, somebody say that, oh, they deal with special special kids. Or, okay, here we go. Um, and so I went to Boston, to a Yeshiva in Boston. Um, it was a branch of Lakewood. Uh, uh, was it Base Medrash Gavoa? Um, and I was there for two years and um, that's where where life kind of really kicked in because it was a culture shock. I did not grow up in an, I grew up in Orthodox, but I did not grow up in a black hat yeshiva world um, that came involved. And then I discovered um, I discovered uh, porn magazines. So, you know, more education off the street. And I discovered um, halacha, which doesn't work well with uh, mm -hmm. being human in a sense when you're 14 and there's nobody to talk to about this stuff. And, the, Jewish, the Jewish law. Right, right, right. Oh, right, correct. Sorry about that. Yeah, uh, Jewish law. And, um, you know, the hormones are raging and I had no place to go with it. And if I did go to somebody in yeshiva about it, either I was ridiculed or I was, I was slapped 
I mean, by by the rabbis. I mean, I'm not saying beaten, but yeah. like whack, you know, across the face. So you put that combination together that when my first Purim came, which is a Jewish holiday, where drinking is is encouraged, mm-hmm. um, you know, my rabbi, my and my 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 teacher, we had a party in his house, and he said, "Here, have a glass of wine. Here, have a glass of wine. Here, have a glass of wine." And Arnie was the guy that was under the table. And Arnie was the guy that was dragged back to his room. And Arnie was the guy that vomited and was sick. And Arnie was the guy that just felt like, you know, like crap. And um, and uh, when I, I passed out and I came to, um, what I remembered was feeling good. I didn't remember any of the other stuff. Hmm. So I ran back to his, his, his apartment and I banged on the door and I said, I want more and I want more. And he says, I'm not giving you any more. And I said, well, if you don't give me more, I'm going to jump out the window. And he said, go ahead. You live on the first floor. So. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Okay. And so you were there for two years and. I was there for two years. There was a lot of insanity that was there again, because there was no, there was no support like we know today uh, on those 14 year old hormones. And it was, it wasn't just hormones. It was, I was away from home for the first time. Um, my parents very rarely sent me any money. So any money that I made, I had to, I had to hustle for, I really had to hustle for, I think one time I, it could be more, but I remember one time I got $5 and my parents gave me and, um, you know, I was thrilled, but I, I ran the canteen and I stole from the canteen and, you know, I, I, I did what, 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 what people do when they're in survival mode. Um, and, uh, and that lasted for, like I said, for a couple of years and I came back and I went to school back in Baltimore to the same school that I had grown up in. So Mm -hmm. the only thing that was missing in the 12 years of school, 13 years of school was those two years, my ninth and 10th grades, which are, you know, very impressive, impressionable years. Um, but now I'm back and I'm back and people welcome me back. And um, of course, I still, you know, when I went through my history, I was resentful because I left in the eighth grade and I didn't graduate with all these guys and you know, all this stuff that we we try to watch out and not to happen happened um, that I was left out of the yearbook in that year, you know, like all that all that crazy stuff. And that um, I came back when I was, I think, uh, 15, 16 whatever ages, whatever, you know, grades that, inter- you know, interprets into. And I spent 11th and 12th grade and, and very vibrant, very alive and very active and very much more aware of my crazinesses without me realizing that I was crazy. And um, always ran, always ran, always ran away um, uh, from from people and from situations I didn't like the yeshiva world because I didn't like it. I didn't like people I was, you know, went to school with. I always felt different. Again, back to that different stuff. And um, I did, after I graduated high school, I went to college. But what do I need college for? Because I'm a survivor. I'm going to find a way to make to make life work. And I actually stayed in college. I was in college for about uh, eight months. Um, and computers, by the way, computer science, because it fascinated me. Always fascinated me. Still to this day, it does. You know, that I can sit in front of my computer, you know, how far away am I? Well, you guys, you're in Israel, so I'm 6,000 miles away, and it's as if we're sitting next to each other. Yep. To me, it's remarkable. It's just absolutely remarkable. Um, and then and then I um, I moved to New York. I got a job. First, I got a job in, in Maryland. I worked for about a year. And then I got it. Then I, I, one day, out of nowhere, my sister invited me to New York. Why don't you come to New York for Shabbos? And I went to Far Rockaway, and... Rabbi Shalomo Feifel was there, and he says, so you'll come, you'll come. Right. Rabbi tells me to come, so I come. 
And uh, so it was a slight detour I made to New York for like 50 years, just a slight detour. <laughs> um, and I just came back here a year ago in June. So that's where, you know, I was really left to be free when I moved to New York at the time. I was on my own. Uh, I moved in with my sister and she didn't, after six weeks, she said to me, she says, you don't belong here. You, you know, I have a marriage. I'm, you know, newly married. I need to, you know, thrive my marriage. Um, you need to find a place. And of course, I was, you know, disappointed and devastated. Um, but she never let me, she never let me out of her, you know, under her, under her wings, so to speak. And um, we always stayed close. Um, we stayed close until she died. But uh, that's where I was left. I was left a free reign. And Arnie being in free reign in a, in a community where, where drinking was a, I don't know, it was like, I don't know, like a reward almost for, for the week's accomplishments. Um, it didn't bode well for a guy like me. Let me just put it that way. I never, again, that same feel, those same feelings of not being a part of, always feeling different, always feeling separate, just manifested itself. Um, I, I drank more simply because I had the ability to drink more. I was working full time, uh, had to raise a family. Um, I got married very young and I immediately had kids. By the time I was 22, 23 years old, I already had a kid. Um, and I just thought life was a breeze until I saw people younger than me moving forward with their lives in much more secure ways, you know, in, in solid ways. And, and you know, jealousy kicked in and resentment kicked in. And it just was an excuse uh, in many ways to drink more, not because I purposely wanted to or understood why. But again, uh, alcohol allowed me to do what, what I couldn't do for myself in many ways. Um, it, it didn't, I, I like, it's a saying that I hear people say, it didn't make me for, to, to what I was, it revealed what I was, uh, that I was very selfish, very self-centered, very jealous, very envious, and at the same time, very lazy, <laughs> you know, like, why, why should I do anything? You know, somebody else should take care of me. Um, and that went on, that went on until my life really got unmanageable. I mean, further where I was having uh, trouble with my, with my wife, um, and, you know, you know, watching people move on. I was actually hired by a famous frozen food company at the time when I early in early marriage, in early marriage, where I was number, I was number four in a four man company. And five years later, because of my addiction, I was asked to leave. Um, and I was number 11 in that company and I was sweeping the floors and driving a truck and I couldn't understand why. I just didn't understand it. Um, at some point, I was somebody suggested I might have a problem, and they suggested I go to a therapist. So I went to an Orthodox therapist up in Muncie, New York, uh, who sat in his big leather chair with the beard to the middle of his chest. And I told him my story. And he said to me very simply, he said, I don't think you have a drinking problem because there's no such thing as a Jewish alcoholic. <laughs> wow. He's, he's laughing. He's laughing. But he, he then went on to, to tell me I should go to my doctor and get a prescription for, for pills. And um, so I went to my doctor and my doctor said, no, I'm not doing that. And so I found a doctor who would. That's like any good alcoholic, drug addict. And uh, it allowed me to drink better. And um, that was really, it was a progressive, you know, they call it a progressive illness. Uh, it just got worse. It just got worse. I actually went to AA at one point and I was there for about six or eight weeks and Again, my hearing, I don't hear what other people hear. One of the one of the statements in AA when when they open a meeting is that we are um, we are not um, 
there are no dues or fees for AA membership. And what I heard was there are no Jews or thieves. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'm done because I'm Jewish and I'm a thief. So, I mean, I would steal from you. I didn't, I didn't rob you directly, but you know, I was a survival mode. I was a big, I had a business. So there's plenty of ways and you guys, everybody knows this. There's plenty of ways that in business people make mistakes in their own favor and they don't say anything. And I found a way to do that. And um, I, I ultimately I made amends to them all. But at the time, you know, I, I did whatever it took, you know, to survive. And um, the best that alcohol ever got me um, without treatment was to get me drunk again. Or I should change that. The best that sobriety ever got me uh, was to get me drunk again because I didn't know how to I didn't know how to live. I just didn't know how to live. Um, and at a certain point in my drinking career, I looked in the mirror one day and said, I want to die. That that's what that's what addiction took me to. It just took me to a point that I wanted to die. And through a series of events that I had very, very, very little to do with, it was being graced by God. I don't ask me what all of a sudden he he came out with his his scepter and he said, Okay, we're gracing him right now. Um, I got clean and sober and uh I don't know. I don't know how else to tell you this, but I, I definitely would not be alive today, because along with the with the alcohol and the and the and the drugs that I used, there was cigarettes and 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 there was uh, you know food and there was again there was sex and all the stuff that went with it that I had no values for, and if there was food that was involved and it made me feel good, you know, back to the whack a mole story, you know. So I did all kind of strange stuff for a bunch of strange reasons that. I didn't understand at the time. And again, it was only once I got into recovery that I began to learn what alcoholism was all about. Was I able to begin to make some of those changes and to understand what was really going on? And wow. and in terms of your 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 first marriage, so are, are you you're saying that you were not aware at the time that you had a problem or you knew that there was something like did you have any sort of idea that something's off? Well, here? there's there's always an inclination, guys. You know, let me just turn a light on. Hold on, because it's getting dark over here. Mm. Hope that's a little better. Mm. Um, there's always a this subtle, you know, uh, soul inclination that something's not right. Something, something's just not right. I couldn't, I couldn't put my finger on it. Um, and I, I really, I didn't know because nobody else had an answer either. I mean, my rabbi told me, he says to me at one point, he said, I don't know what to do for you anymore. Nobody knew that, you know, nobody understood alcoholism at the time. If you look at the the social work white papers from the late 70s to early 80s, they're they're pretty specific in that 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 the Jewish alcoholism is virtually non-existent. So whatever the problem was, it everybody figured it was something else. Until somebody, somebody actually threw somebody, a friend of mine whose wife was in OA, which is Overeaters Anonymous, um, they they came to this realization that maybe Arnie's got an alcohol problem, and wow. um, and there was no place else for me to go. There just was there was no place else to go. Therapy didn't work. Um, clergy didn't work. Not drinking and not drugging for sure didn't work. Right. Um, did my wife have a clue? And so she thought what my behavior was normal. So in many ways, my first wife was the perfect wife for me in that sense. Uh, besides that, my my kids, my, you know, she's the mother of my children. 
Um, at the same time, there was stuff that was going on in the marriage that I was I was clueless. I really was. I didn't understand. I didn't know what it meant to be a present father. I didn't know what it meant to be a present husband. And I didn't I didn't understand any of it whatsoever. To me, it was like just having a good time and you needed to have a good time. So that's what I did. I mean, there was at one point in my drinking career that she moved out for a month. She went to her sister's. And when she came back, she says, I'm back. And I said, where were you? Oh no! What were you a were you a functional drinker? I was functional to the extent that I was functional until I wasn't. I, I and I know that's an ambiguous answer. Um, it's the same way that alcohol was fun until it wasn't. Um, uh, towards the end of my addiction, by the time I, I mean I had gone into business at a certain point. Don't ask me how how I kept the business alive for five years. Um, but we manipulate and we, we find ways to get people to do our work for us. And I would disappear for days on end. And, and, and every, again, everybody knew Arnie was a drunk except Arnie, you know, understanding what alcoholism is about that, that it, that it, you know, I had this abnormal reaction to alcohol that probably 85 or 80 to 85% of the population doesn't have, you know, that creates this, this craving in me. I mean, you want to call it an allergy, call it an abnormal reaction, um, coupled with this obsession of mine that I I think you know somewhere along the way somewhere somewhere along the way, and it's an obsession by the way, um, which is why it makes it a mental illness. Um, the combination of those two that I can safely enjoy and control my drinking, and um, unfortunately for a guy like me that doesn't happen. And it's not about being a bad person, and it's not about about you know, any of the 3 billion other reasons that people say, or they blame this one and that one, it's really that that's what happens inside of this body. Why is my chemistry different than somebody else? You got me? I, I have no idea. It's, it's a story of, you know, it's like, it's like finding, you know, there used to be a commercial on TV in, in New York in the middle of the night where this, I think it was a Seafield or Seawold um, uh, Rehabilitation Center. And the guy would be sitting behind his desk and he said, well, you come around the corner and there's a garbage truck sitting there and there's a guy sitting in front of the garbage, laying in the, on the ground in front of the garbage truck. He just got hit by the garbage truck. He said, do you sit there and figure out why the guy was hit or do you get the guy to the hospital, take care of him and then we'll figure it out later? Mm-hmm. And that's really, you know, what I had to, you know, I had to work with. It didn't make a difference why, why I was the way that I was, who was doing what they were doing. I just mm. had to, I had to get, I had to take care of what I had to take care of. So, um, yeah, in, in alcoholism and drug addiction, are they all the same? I'm not going to say they're all the same. Um, but some of the basic tendencies and characteristics of them are there is this phenomena of craving. There's an obsession of mind. There's a joy that comes from it. How many times that we've heard this, you know, there's a nirvana that comes with the alcohol. You know, we, we drink for, for the, for the effect we drug for the effect. The only problem is, is it's fun until it's not. And then it, it, it begins, it, you know, what started out as fun, you know, blocks a lot of different neurotransmitters i don't want to get into the science of it because it really doesn't make a difference but the neurotransmitters in our bodies and then it like let's go and then it you know the wave comes back and then i have to you know it's all kind of craziness but yeah Mm -hmm. Hmm. and and did you did you looking back were there the the sort of telltale signs like were you stashing bottles and you got it oh yeah hi (laughs) hiding bottles uh, in the closet hiding in, in the toilet tank 
Wow. This may be a naive question, but I am curious, like, would you say it's always the case, you know, because I could think of instances, you know, without getting in, into my own personal life, not not about me, but, you know, if one discovers that somebody is, you know, has bottles in their drawers, does that by definition, would you say that means that they're an alcoholic or not necessarily? You, you're getting, so like, are there certain things that say this person is definitely an alcoholic? You know? So you're like, getting into an area that's so gray, mm -hmm. right? Um, because I, there are things that I can do today, um, that are, that are, that are different only because the motivations are different. I'm not talking about substances themselves, um, behaviors that, that I would be doing when I was out there and everybody, yeah, he's an alcoholic. So what do you expect? But you, you got to get it, it. I don't know how to answer the question. Not necessarily so. It really boils down to to two two criteria. Can a person stop entirely when he's willing, when he wants, mm. and can he stay stopped? You know, I stopped a million times, mm. but I always started again. You know, you get the guys, and I heard this, and I this, I, I went through this with my cigarettes. It took me two years from the time I quote I stopped smoking. I started again and again and again and again. I stopped. I didn't stop drinking that much. I only stopped drinking one time. I stopped drinking for two weeks. And then everybody was making fun of me because I wasn't drinking. Mm -hmm. So I got angry at that. So it was a good reason to drink. Um, but the, the, the criteria, you don't need the 40 question test. It's really two things. Can he stop entirely when he wants? And does he not start again and stay stopped? Um, and that's really a criteria. Now, just because somebody hides a bottle does not necessarily mean that the guy is an alcoholic. Abe Tversky used to say this all the time. Uh, we got to determine, you know, what's the difference between somebody who's an alcoholic and somebody who's not an alcoholic. Um, but it takes it takes a little bit of time to see it. You know, does he have sufficient reason to uh, to stop and stay stop? You know, what else is going on in the family? Because by the way, it's all inclusive. You can't separate the family from it. Uh, <clears throat> if uh, if a spouse is involved, generally speaking, uh, my experience has been, and and the literature in Alcoholics Anonymous talks about it. And I'm dealing with a couple of guys right now where their families are neurotic because of the people who are drinking. And you want to go look up neurotic in the, in the dictionary. We're nuts. I mean, the people around us are nuts because of it. Okay. So, so there's no way that I guess there are a couple of ways to figure out if someone has the problem. I'm more concerned for, for our listeners that, you know, maybe there's a guy that's not sure if he is or he's not, or he's not honest with himself, but you have to be able to get to the step where you're ready to take action and go and figure out how to stop it. That's it, that is, that, absolutely. Because without that conviction, you know, uh, we had another guest that said, you, know, you have to give up before you can work on it. What makes somebody want to give up though? That's What's... my question. That's my question. So what do you say to the guy who's not sure, but you're trying to get them to take action because everyone around them sees it, but he still is in denial or, you know, I can quit any day or, you know. Well, let me, so show me that you can quit and stay stopped. Mm. It, it, it's really a difficult thing because there's a lot of, again, we're packing gray areas in the sense that, um, you know, there's a lot of peer pressure. You know, my, my buds are drinking. You know, this one made a kiddish. This one made a kiddish. And he's got top shelf stuff. And I've heard this thousands of times already. 
Um, the question really comes down to, can a guy take an honest assessment of what's going on in his family? Um, where, where's the spouse and all this, you know, what's going on, you know, how's the family life? And it's not because it's a judgment on the family life. Trust me, guys, you know, we're human beings and, and, and we screw up because we screw up, uh, you know, it's the name of the game, but is there honesty and is there integrity? Is there credibility? Is there open discussion? Is there connection, true connection between the people that are involved that they can sit down and have this discussion? Listen, I've been in relationships since I've been divorced and I, I've been called out on stuff and I've been able to say, you know what? You're right. I made a mistake. My bad. You know, let's let's what can I do to help? When I was drinking, that's the last thing in the world that I wanted to say. The first thing I would say is, yo, it's my life. And if I'm that, if I want to have and this is how I have a good time. So how do you have willingness? The question really comes down to in my world. How do you have willingness when you don't have willingness? How do you want to do something when you don't want to do it? And it, it, it comes down to, do we have sufficient reason to stop? Do we have sufficient reason to stay stopped? Um, how is it impacting the people that are around us? And how much denial is really in the picture? Because generally speaking, everybody wants to protect everybody else. We care about, you know, our, our father, our mother, our child, particularly in my case, my children and my grandchildren. And I watch it go on all the time with the people that I work with. One guy I'm dealing with right now, the guy's he's an alcoholic and his mom is an active alcoholic. And the husband, the father and the husband is sitting there going, uh, yeah, but I, I love her and she's fine. And it's her mother's fault, you know, all kind of stuff. In the meantime, what's really happening in the family? And, and denial, by the way, as we say, is not just a river in Egypt. Um, denial, mm -hmm. denial really is a, it's a mental block in being, in having the willingness or the ability, forget the willingness, but having the ability uh, to see what's really happening because there's so many factors that are involved. It's so complex. So you got me. You got like, me. Do you do you think someone has to hit rock bottom? Is there a way? I don't know. I don't know what rock bottom means. You go ahead. I'm with, sorry. You know. No. I. I mean, from what I know from your story, you lost a lot at, at rock bottom, or whenever you decided when you decided to take action. Right. You lost. I, I, you lost yeah. a lot. Yeah. I. I. I burnt my life to the ground. By the way, I burnt my life to the ground in recovery too. But that's different. Um, there has to be a willingness to at least there has to be a willingness to at least believe that there that a willingness is possible. That usually only comes when people have been, you know, pummeled into the ground, you know, over and over and over and over. Does does that mean it has to be that way? No, you know, there's there's many tools out there today. There's there's plenty of plenty of um, uh, help out there to bring the awareness level up that people can you know start taking a look at what's going on. I have one guy that I work with, um, <laughs> his wife said, to him, he says, look, it's real simple. You know, I love you. I love you dearly. Um, uh, you know, we have two kids and, and, and I want our lives to work and I'm not going to sit here and clean up after you because you want to get a, get drunk. Now, either you're in this thing or you're not in this thing. Well, there is subtle reality, you know, and she was dead serious about it. How many people can really say that? How many people will really stick to their guns with this stuff? A lot of people do not stick to their guns. Okay, so he's a little crazy. So he's a little off. So he gets drunk once in a while. So what? But it's really an honest assessment. Be Having the ability 
to have that honest assessment of what's going on in the relationship to begin with to make it happen. My my ex number one, um, I don't know that she had the ability to do that. Okay, so life was bad. So so to her it was like I said to her to some extent there was there, it was a, there was a normalcy to it. So you got me. You got me. If there was a normalcy to it, so then would you say? So it sounds like your your divorce with the, your your first wife. It wasn't. I'm trying to think of how to frame this question. It wasn't like, you know, you hear a lot of times a lot of people say like, oh, you know, we got divorced because of his his or her addiction problem. Like it sounds like that wasn't a specific reason that um, she would have pinpointed. For example, it was kind of just everything, all the like you were saying, it's all holistic, like all the circumstances together. Correct. 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 That's what I. That's that's an, that's how I would classify the the demise of my first relationship. And then again, also. I was incapable. Truth is, is that I had no clue how to be in a relationship. I had no clue how to be vulnerable in a relationship. I had no clue how to take positive criticism to make change at that time. If you would have said to me, well, you're doing this, I would go, you know, an in, a certain finger would pop off of, of one of my hands, you know, to tell you where I think you should go. Um, I wasn't capable of, of doing it. Um, so, and it was a combination really of both of us. And it, again, it's not a judgment. I'm not being judgmental and I'm not self-righteous about it. She, in many ways, as I said, was really the perfect woman for me at the time. Hmm. She was. <laughs> and How long were you married for? Say it again. How long were you married for? The first Still time? trying to figure that out. <laughs> uh. We got married in 19, I believe it was 1972 or 1973. Uh. Uh, we we got divorced in '86, mm -hmm. something like that. I, I I you know the the numbers are just they're ambiguous because right. I I really don't know. Right. Okay, and then my second marriage, the marriage lasted 18, 19 years. Oh wow! And yeah. that was already post sobriety. That right? was I was in sobriety, but again, you know, managing my life and all the areas that go with the characteristics that surround an alcoholic um had to be dealt with and i never knew how to deal with that at the time so mm -hmm. you know you took you take me from being incapable of being in a relationship to putting me in a relationship that i was incapable of being in and um and neither one of us you know we, we have alcoholics in general we have a phenomenal ability of of, of choosing the right individual that isn't right for us <laughs> mm. it, it's just what we do it's just what, what we do what does that look like? I'm curious because so, you know, you went through a, a first marriage and you weren't capable of, you didn't know how, what it meant to be in a relationship. And I, I, I think a lot of us can certainly relate. I mean, I think it's actually incredible when you think about people getting married so young, it's incredible that any marriages kind of <laughs> survive, you know, when, because when you think about it, like, what do we know at the age of, you know, I also, I got married at 21 uh, or was it 22, whatever the case is, had a, had a child at 23, don't know anything at that, at that point in our lives. So, so you, you, you come into a second marriage armed with that experience and wisdom that you gained, you know, following your first marriage. So what, what would you say are the challenges in that second relationship, for example, you know? Well, I think, I think the, the challenges are the same that were the challenges in the first marriage that I never, I never really, you know, dealt with, um, you know, honesty, integrity, vulnerability, 
um, uh, communication, connection, um, mm -hmm. making you know not making the other person more important. I'm not saying put them on a pedestal. I, I don't want to go there. That's not mm -hmm. that's not what I'm where I'm headed for. But making that person your partner, and and not not your you know not somebody that you're using for various different reasons. If there's a selfishness, look, we all have selfishness in us. If if I wouldn't be selfish, I wouldn't I wouldn't get up out of bed in the morning, you know, to take care of myself. I mean, we know that. If I wasn't jealous, I wouldn't go. I wouldn't work. Try, mm -hmm. Trust me, I I wouldn't at all. Um, at the same time, if I don't have that person as as a number one priority in my life, um, because they're my partner. That I'm already doomed. It, it, it's already doomed. Now, did that? Does that mean that I didn't start my second marriage with that in mind? Maybe I did. Okay, but then little things creep in. You know, resentment creeps in, anger creeps in, fear creeps in, and if I'm not dealing with it healthy, on a healthy level, then I'm only going to go back to where I was. You know, where I was years before, because. If I don't know any better, then I'm only do, always doing the same thing that I did. And if I always did what I've done, I'm always going to get what I got. Hmm. So how do I learn how to make those changes? But you also have to remember that my partner has to also be willing to do this work. You know, we have a tendency or guys like me have a tendency um, to, to find that person who's just as injured. And knowing very quickly, I sit with somebody, when I sit with a new client, I know almost very quickly what I can, whether it's in business or whether it's, you know, recovery, you know, what I can, quote, get away with. Mm -hmm. Now, am I going to utilize that as a as a as a, manipul a manipulative tool or am I going to utilize it as, as, a, as a growth potential? That's something that's going to have to be up to me that I have to be consciously mindful of to be able to make that work. And. I mean, I was blessed. I was blessed that, you know, about, uh, about eight, nine years ago, I had met somebody and, um, and, and we really hit it off well in every area of our lives. Um, the fact that it didn't work out was for different reasons, hmm. but it was, it was remarkable. The ability to get close to somebody and feel safe with somebody hmm. manifested itself. I didn't have that with with either one of my spouses. Now, was that my fault? Probably. Probably some of it is I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know how to do it. Um, but I, I I have to say that I'll, I'll take 51% of the responsibility. I'll even go to say I'll take 75%. But they're, they got a piece of it. They all, they, they, they have a piece of it. And because um, they're just as, I'm going to use the term guilty, but it's not the word that I really want. They're un, they're unknowledgeable of how to do and how to deal with a guy like me to begin with, because I don't, I don't necessarily know how to deal with a gay guy like me. Hmm. Wow. So did you, when you, it's part of the 12 steps also therapy or that's not part of it. Did you not, do that? Not necessarily so. Um, there's a tremendous amount of work of self-reflection. Um, there's a difference between self-help and self-reflection. Uh, my mentor, uh, Rabbi Abe Torsky, talks about it a lot. And my friends with long-term sobriety talk about it. If it was just self-help, we would all get self-help and we'd be done. <laughs> but mm. obviously self-help does not necessarily work. Um, it's really it's really about a lot of, of uh, it's 12-step work is a lot of, reflection and 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 
being able to humble myself to the point of understanding that I don't have all the answers, that I can be wrong. And in many cases, I probably am wrong. And it's not because I'm beating myself up, because I'm learning how to accept the fact that I'm a fallible human being. So today, I, you know, people ask me, my kids, we, we joke about it. I said, you know, uh, Abba, uh, your, your, your father is being a knucklehead today because he screwed up about something. And they'll go, yeah, we know Abba. Ab is a knucklehead, or I'm crazy today, and there are days that I am. Um, therapy has worked for me and sharing my own experience in situations where my recovery program and taking a look at myself, um, I was incapable of communicating that with, with my significant other, um, which is great when you have a mediator, you know, a therapist, a, a marriage counselor uh, that can be able to interpret my words into her words. And so, yeah, so is it necessary to have 12 step program to get clean and sober? No. Is it necessary to be in therapy to get clean and sober? No. But whatever works and, and we're, we're at least in my world, I'm, I'm a very big proponent that whatever works that brings people together in a positive light, that's what needs then that's what needs to be done. Hmm. And part of recovery. I from what I understand is, is not dating anyone for that first year. Is that, is that a thing? It, it, it's the same way as, as when Jews have sex, do they use a, a hole in the sheet? <laughs> um, the general consensus is, and, and again, this is my experience of, 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 you know, living, living a program. Um, the idea is that, you know, as I said, the good news is we get our feelings back. The bad news is we get our feelings back. Um, I put down drugs and alcohol and all those neurotransmitters wake up and my brain cells wake up and you know, some of the stuff cleans out. Some of it takes longer, um, but I'm a pretty sensitive guy. Now I'm sensitive without, without, without the drugs and the alcohol. Um, I'm even more sensitive without the alcohol. And when people say stuff to me, um, especially when I am in a relationship with somebody who I have this expectation of loving, loving me the way that I want to be loved. And I can't be loved that way. So it kind of triggers a whole bunch of stuff. And, you know, oh, my God, and I'm no good. And it, it brings people back to a negative self-reflection. So the suggestion, which, of course, I did not listen to, um, the suggestion is that for the first year, give yourself a break. Get in touch with your emotions. Learn how to start beginning to deal with some of these emotions. And then we'll see, you know, how, you know, we, we can take you forward from there. Um, being able to be in a relationship with dignity and grace and self-respect is a lot different than being in a relationship for uh, for partnership and sex. There are two different things. So, yeah, I, I mean, you know, we just got a request from somebody to talk about uh, dating advice after post-divorce. So I, I see and sort of a parallel when, you know, after divorce, it's also a major trauma and there's a recovery period. It's, you know, it's not the same as, as an addiction where you need to re kind of figure out what's going on below and, and figure out how to get day to day, but there's still a trauma and you still need to recover. And I like to use the word recalibrate. Um, so I'm trying to, that's why I'm asking that question because I want to know if you did it again, would you have taken a year to kind of know, learn yourself uh, better? So, so, so I'm out of a, of a relationship now for about five years. 
Um, it was a very, very deep, intense relationship. Part of me is that broken guy that figures it's never going to happen again, right? It's just, it ain't happening, guys. Okay, God, God's got a plan, and I got to just live with God's plan. However, I did start dating recently. Um, and the good news that's come from it is that I have a healthier boundary and a healthier value that I never had before. Um, I guess I don't have to say, tell this to everybody. You, you and I both know that when, you know, when you leave Jewish law out of the picture in a relationship or complete Jewish law, you know, <laughs> bodies, <laughs> physical bodies can get in the way. And understandably so. I mean, I get it. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, connection when it comes to this stuff. And, and it, it also affects the relationship and it also affects the value of the relationship. And I'm not preaching in the sense that, you know, I'm telling people what to do or not to do. I just, what this is what I've learned. Um, and being able to step back and look at the person as a person, not for what they can give me sexually um, has made a huge difference in my ability to um, uh, get close to somebody uh, in, in, a, in a different way. In a totally, it's a totally different experience. So I, you're going to, you're going to, again, you're getting into an area that it, it, it's, it's up everybody on their own, you know, they should do what works for them. Um, sometimes God, you know, kind of pushes me in the right direction. I, 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 while I have gotten used to living alone, um, you know, not having noise in the house or for whatever I do, um, it would be nice to be able to travel with somebody. It would be nice to share a bed with somebody. It would be nice to, you know, walk down the street holding hands with somebody. And and maybe it's time that that I, I forgive a little bit that the mistakes that I've made in the past were based on different motivations than what I have today. That there's a healthier, that again, like I said, a healthier boundary, a healthier, you know, value that I have that makes a difference. Um, one of my grandkids got married about a year, a year and a half ago, and they were both, both totally naive. I mean, when I tell you naive, they were totally naive. Um, had no clue of, of, of outside, you know, interests, had no clue of, 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 of sexuality, anything more than, you know, you get married, you have sex and you have kids kind of thing. And, um, and I watch because I watch, you know, I'm Zadie, I'm grandpa. I got to, you know, how are my grandkids, how are my kids doing? And my daughter and I, we came, we, we've spoken about this more than once, that maybe it's okay when there's healthy boundaries that they, they, they don't know everything beforehand, that they grow together with this stuff. I mean, like I said, my, my, my sex life was, was taught out of a magazine. My sex life was taught from television and from movies. Um, and my sex life was taught of what not to do based on Jewish, Jewish law, which the, 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 they don't all meld together. They might meld together if the, if the boundaries were healthier, um, but they weren't. I didn't have that initially. So, yeah, you know, this is stuff that takes time and stuff, but everybody needs to do what works for them for the right reasons. Not because I'm avoiding a relationship because I don't want to be hurt again, but I'm trying to make something happen on a healthier level. Hmm. And uh, how is your relationship with your kids? Uh, I like I remember it that they they always spoke about you fondly, but again, I came in a little later than all this went down. But I, I'm just amazed that you've kept such a close relationship, at least now. 
um, in the last 20 something years that I've known you and your family. Um, how did you do that? So we're going to go, we're going to go back into tears over here. Um, I'll tell you a story that happened in at the, at the end of my recovery. And um, I was totally wasted. I lived in, a, in an apartment that was a third floor apartment. And uh, it's a huge apartment, but it was a third floor apartment. I had five, I think, kids at the time. And I came up the steps and I was totally wasted. And uh, as any other multitasking individual, when I was when I was wasted, I could do many things multitasking. Like I had a cup of coffee in one hand, a drink in the other hand, a cigarette in one hand, a joint in the other, you know, and shopping bags too, all at the same time. And I came up the steps and I kicked on the door because my hands were right. And um, they, I heard them in the background saying, Abba's home, you know, daddy's home, daddy's home. And they opened the door, they ran down the hallway and they opened the door and they saw me. And um, I got a look. It was a look of pitiful scorn, like, oh my God. Um, the the AA literature uh, in, uh, calls it you know, incomprehensible demoralization. It was this this mm. look of like, oh my god, you know. And and in my mind, you can call it anything you want. It's like you piece of mm, 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 and so on and so forth. Mm. So one of the things so that was one story that happened. The second story that happened that really woke me up is after I got sober and I had split up with ex number one. Um, one of my kids was sleeping over. Two of my kids were sleeping over. And before she went to sleep that night, I said to her, I said, I love you. And she looked at me she's funny. And I said, well, what's the matter? She said, what do you mean you love me? Hey, what do you mean? What is that? What does that mean? She said, oh, you don't love me. And it really hit me. Now, don't ask me why it hit me or whatever, but it was then that I was able to realize that my relationships with my kids were, were really crazed. They were really off base. And I made a decision right then and there that I was gonna be the guy that keeps the lines of communications open with my kids no matter what it takes. Um, and I have, uh, I, by the grace, really, by, uh, by, by, by the grace of God, um, whatever it has taken for me to keep those lines open and to make myself vulnerable to them. And I, I grew up in a household where my father said that, you know, you will respect me because of your father. And today I say, um, I will respect you. And I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not requiring anything in, 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 in return. And my relationship today, I would not give up my relationship with my children, any one of my children for what it is, uh, each one of them in their own way. Um, maybe some stronger in some ways and weaker in the others and others stronger in some ways. Um, I'm welcome into their homes with open arms. Um, I am dealt, I am dealt with very respectfully. I am trusted in their homes. I am trusted in with my grandchildren. Um, so when you ask, you know, where it's holding and how it's holding, it's only by, by, by the grace of God. I, I, I don't, I can't tell you how it got the way that it was any more than, you know, I'm, I'm there, I'm present for them. I show up for them. I do whatever I can for them. Um, I have healthy, again, I have healthy boundaries with them and values with them that I was incapable of having. Don't ask me when it changed. I, I don't know when it changed, but at a certain point it changed. So I'm very grateful. I, I am very grateful. And the only request that I have for my kids when I'm gone, um, I finally pulled that line on that. You'll see when I'm gone. <laughs> when I'm dead and gone. Um, is it is it because I have all girls? Is it please just arrange that somebody says cottage for me? I, I, I have no expectations. I, I love my kids. 
Uh, I feel strongly that uh, they love me. Um, they threw me a birthday party when I turned 70. That was absolutely amazing. Mm. They, they're just constantly present and, and, and loving. I, I mean, and I can't expect anything more considering where I came from. Beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. And, and on that note, uh, we do have something that we call uh, the two dad to quit moment. Uh, the what? We want the two dad to quit moment. Okay. A moment that you can share with us where you were just so proud to be a dad and you were, you, you just felt like, wow, I am the dad, man. This is awesome. And if you could share, share one of those moments with us, we really appreciate you're gonna, it. You're going to, you're going to bring me to tears. Um, I don't know that, that, that I was ever in that point. I think that it, it's, I, I don't like I don't like using the term I am the dad um, because it, there, there's a lot of ego and arrogance involved in that. Mm. Um, I am say that again. So that's interesting. But uh, if it wasn't one in the morning, I would go down that route. But <laughs> maybe maybe for round two. <laughs> no, we can always we can always revisit this anytime, yeah, guys. Yeah. I'm yours. Uh, round two. Anyway, carry on. Sorry, I interrupted you. Um, I guess I guess I guess it, it, it happened recently and. I'm trying to remember exactly the story because I, I don't have I don't have linear memory too well anymore. But just just Abba, what can we do for you? Abba, what's going on? Abba, this, I, you know, I, I had surgery. I had hernia surgery back at the end of December and someone was there to pick me up. Someone they, they cooked for me. It's just this overall sense of feeling that my kids love me and my kids care. And my need is to hold on to that because I don't hold on to believing that somebody loves me just for who I am. That's my struggle. That's something that I go through on a on a day to day basis. Mm. Um, and and it's and it and it and it's difficult. It, it really is. But again, by being the respectful person that I am and being present for them and allowing them to be who they are, the way they are. Um, allows me to feel, you know, I don't look, I, 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 I can receive what they give. I'm not looking to take anything from them. And in that, I've gotten blessings upon blessings upon blessings. Wow. Beautiful. I actually, I, I actually, Ben, I, I, I have to ask you, because it is an interesting comment to me. So can you elaborate a bit on what you meant by that when you said before about the part about the ego? was saying I am the dad I am curious about that if I can ask um I think I think part of not that I think I know that part of alcoholism is 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 an ego driven um you have to love me kind of thing there's a lot of arrogance behind it um mm -hmm. call it narcissism I you know there's so many different terms with it right. whenever I get into this this state in my mind and again it's a it's a mindset that I am the best, I am the greatest, I am, I am, okay, mm. I have arrived. That's mm. usually the beginning of my downfall. <laughs> mm. And it's necessary for me as, as a recovering alcoholic to have that humility and to understand that God runs the world. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just a person here. Uh, they, uh, I'm a bozo on the bus like everybody else. I'm just, <laughs> I'm, I'm just like everybody else who's out there. I get up in the morning and I struggle the same way everybody else struggles. You know, sometimes I get blessed a little bit more than others. And sometimes, and yeah, it's really great that I, I come back from a meeting or I just spoke at a meeting in, in some famous place and because I'm semi-famous in the recovery world. And there you go. I am, you go, mm -hmm. you know, area. 
Um, and, and the parking place right in front of my apartment is open and I'm going, yes, God, you know, you, <laughs> but it's really about keeping myself right sized. Um, and, and that's, and that's something that I have to work on. And when I do that, then I get to see other people as they are, because if I feel greater than others, then I look down at people and I'm not, you are just the same as I am. I'm the same as you are. And you, you, you guys know this very quickly. As soon as you run into somebody who thinks they're better than you, you get that signal real quick. Oh yeah. But, but you have to, it sounds like from what you're saying, but that it's, it's a balance as well with loving yourself. Like you were saying about, not to put words in your mouth, but I think you were saying the idea of like feeling that you're worthy of people loving you for who you are. So humility has to be balanced with you also recognizing your importance and self-worth, wouldn't you say? It's kind correct, of correct, yeah. correct. There's no question, and this is stuff that for years, it's taken me years to understand even any of this, where Abe, Abe Tversky talks about this constantly, you can read about his stuff, is, is, is understanding that my self-esteem is very involved in all this stuff. Mm. Um, he claims, and I don't fully understand it, that self-esteem is low self-esteem is the root of all addiction. I'm not a, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a therapist. I mean, I don't know that it's necessarily accurate, but I'm not arguing. I'm not disputing it. I honor it. Um, at the same time, being able to raise my own perception of self is something that a guy like me has a constant struggle with. Mm. That's all. I could do the greatest things in the world, guys. And I do. I've been I've been literally all over the world. I've been in Israel. I've spoken at Hebrew University. I've been all over the United States. I have been, you know, asked to do. And yes, I feel great and I feel wonderful. And then you have the one guy, <laughs> Abe tells the story. He gave this thing to uh, a lecture to 120, you know, therapists and 119 uh, evaluations came back great. And uh, one came back negative. He says, which one do you think that he focused on for two weeks? That's that's Arnie, you know. That's that's mm -hmm. Arnie, and and why? Who knows why? You know, I have this I have this propulsion system of fear. I have this propulsion system of less than, and you know, and that's the stuff that I have to work on. That's why a guy like me does a gratitude list every day. That's why a guy like me does reaches out to others. That's why a guy like me does service to others, and not, I don't want anything in return. You know, I don't want anything in return. You want to pay me for doing work. That's one thing. But when it comes to uplifting people, no, let God take care of it. And the more that I do this work, all those things that I chased, all those seven areas of life that I mentioned before, God seems to be taken care of that I don't have to rob and I don't have to lie and I don't have to steal and I don't have to be dishonest. And it's just a different life. It's a totally different life. Beautiful. I think it's like a case of imposter syndrome. Got me. I'm not quite sure I know what that means. <laughs> From my under my understanding, it's it's where you know good things are happening and people think things of you, but like you're waiting for the ball to drop when people really realize who you are. Um, I don't I don't think I have that anymore. I think in early recovery, probably very much so. I think that my struggle of dealing with my alcoholism is a is something that kind of never goes away. Um, at the same time, when if something's going on, I focus, you know, I, I keep focusing on 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 God instead of in, in finite in infinite God instead of finite self. Um, finite self limits me. It limits it 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 
it reproduces fear over and over and over again. I, I, I've watched myself. I don't know why I have this fear, uh, particularly uh, around money. I, I mean, I can tell you that now. Mm. Um, I don't know where it's come from. I've worked through it, I thought, in therapy. And my job is still to put in put in the effort to go make a living. Now, does that mean the the rock? I mean, I can tell you as 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 one of my sponsors, uh, my keeps telling me, he said, Arnie, what have you never ha not had? And I have to be able to see that and focus in on that. So, mm. well, I, I do want to say, you know, I, I lived in your sister's house for a while, and right. I spent a whole lot of time there, and she only had good things to say about you. Um, yeah, you know, here we as go much as them. as. As much as you guys, you know, joke back and forth, uh, she really, she was like your biggest fan. And I know, uh, I know, I know she and, was. She, um, and the, I think we both, we both miss her dearly. Yeah. Towards the end of her life, we had um, the last few months of her life. Uh, we had unbelievable conversations about this stuff. And and um, she told me, I mean, well, I, she inspired me my whole life. I told her that um, she was my biggest inspiration. Mm -hmm. And and I get it and I understand it and stories I we can go into again it'll take days and I gotta go because I I, I gotta go yeah, but yeah. Um, stories that she would tell me that things that I suggested to her through my own experience in AA she was able to carry on not only to her family but to others and the rewards that came back to her because of it and um, just mind boggling how how a little shift in perception can change a person's life so absolutely. Right. And, and so the last thing we'd like to leave our guests, uh, our listeners with is words of wisdom from, from our guests about if they're about to go through divorce or thinking about divorce. Um, I know, you know, you've taken up biking recently. Uh, just what got you through it and what should they be thinking and, and what kind of advice if someone would come to you today and say, hey, I don't know what to do. I, I'm stuck. And, and you've been there already. What would you say to them? So here we go. That's another two hour conversation. <laughs> um, um, simply put, really, you know, looking at looking at the at the end of the tunnel is that when you're in the tunnel, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel, but it's awfully dark inside the tunnel. There's a grieving process. There's a there's a there's a healing process. There's a pain process that we we need to go through or I've needed to go through. I mean, everybody does this differently. And by the way, there's no right or wrong way of doing this. Mm. You know, every I don't care who it is. There's no there's no formula, but we all have to go through it um, and, and saying don't give up. Just don't give up. And, and it's not because you were right or you were wrong or you were bad or you were good. Maybe you needed to go through this to grow through this. You know, it's 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 a it's it's a phenomenal you know picture that we can't draw pictures so easily, um, and to understand that everything that I have gone through in my life and I continue to go through is to help somebody else. End of story. Um, and 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 it only benefits us. And if we're doing it back to that honesty with honesty and open mindedness and willingness, and and there's a sense of value that comes that we didn't have before, for whatever the reasons are. Our parents didn't show us. Maybe they didn't know how to do it. Their parents didn't. You look at my family's history. They they were dysfunctional back from the times they came back from, they came from Russia in the 1800s. Like it was crazy stuff. And yet at the same time, you know what? We all needed to be where we are. And who am I to tell God what God's journey is for, for myself or for anybody else? How, who am I to say that, that what, where God has taken me, it stops here. 
that there's always more, there's always more, there's always more, there's always hope. And it's my job to, to stay tuned to that hope. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for, for giving us your time. And um, before we go, uh, I just want to let our listeners know, uh, you can find us on 2DadToQuit.com, 2DadToQuit on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, uh, YouTube. And we are really interested in sharing your stories and having you on here. And please let us know in the comments if there's topics that you'd like to us to cover. Send us your questions. We look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you for listening to the Two Dad to Quit podcast. Available twodadtoquit.com. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode.